0: Hello, my name is Claire and I will be having a conversation with Dennis Norris II for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project setter- centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is Thursday, December 12, 2019, and this is be- being recorded at uh, the New York Public Library uh, Manhattan branch hi Dennis
1: hi thank you for having me this is yeah. so cool
0: thanks for being here in room 67A <laughs>
1: it's a beautiful room it's I feel very fancy
0: yeah um, great carpet uh. so um, I'm gonna begin with the question when did you begin to write
1: Okay, so I usually tell people that I began to write um, like a little bit in college. I took a creative writing class, um, and I wrote a story that I wanted to be like a long, short story. Like i had read a couple of very short things in that class. And I like halfway through was like, let me write like a real short story, like a short story that has some like girth to it. And so I wrote this story. I didn't finish it, but I wrote maybe 15 pages, 10, 15 pages, and I took it into class. And um, I had a really interesting response when it was workshopped, which was that half of the class really liked it, and half of the, all, all of the students of color in the class really liked the story. All of the white students <laughs> did not like the story. The white students were all white men. And, but everyone agreed that it was like interesting and that it wasn't a story, that it was a novel. So I was really intrigued by that idea and I just thought I would, um, like go through my life, have a career, and then retire at like 65 and sit down and write this novel and like have a second career. That's kind of like what I tell people, but that's, that was the catalyst. Um, because then when I graduated, it was 2008, the economy went to shit. I was living at home, trying to get like any, literally any job. Like I applied to Dick's Sporting Goods, (laughs) even. Um, And and so, since I had no job and nothing to do and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, I thought, well, maybe I'll just write right now. Like I'll work on this novel, and and then by the end of the summer, um, I, I realized that I wanted to write and that I didn't really know how to write. So that's usually what I tell people is like that moment in my life. But in fact, there's a whole nother. Um time, which is that when I was in like middle school, all my best friends went to a different school than me. Um, and they I knew them through my parents' work. and they lived on the other side of Cleveland. So we would talk on the phone all the time because we could only see each other really on weekends. And so we would talk on the phone and we would like write we would write stories to each other um, on the phone. And it was almost like, we started off doing stories where it's like, you tell me a sentence and then I tell you a sentence and then we'd be on these call, these like massive three way, four way, five way, six way calls and we would just go like in a circle like the game telephone. And then we started writing like our own stories and we'd read them to each other and like kind of workshop them without knowing that we were workshopping them. Um, and then I remember that I, was also really in love with Harriet the Spy at the time. So I made my parents go out and buy me one of those notebooks, like one of those like mead notebooks with a black and white cover. And that's where I started writing stories. And I was also like trying to go around and like be like Harriet the Spy and do like journalist work, like just record what people were doing. But I actually didn't find it all that interesting. (laughs) So I just started making things up. And I wrote my first novel in that um, notebook, which really wasn't a novel. But in my head, it was like 50, I think it was like 50 handwritten pages. So in my head, it was a novel. So I always tell people, um, or what I should tell people, rather, is that I started writing probably when I was like 11, like, um, I think I was 11 then, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, the novel that your classmates in college told you could be out of this short story. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a novel that you still imagine or think about, or did it kind of like, uh, it was more the idea of it that?
1: Um, so it's funny. I have no interest in writing that novel anymore. Um, and that gets into some of the stuff that we're talking about here as well with this project. Um, that novel was about, um the idea was an old black man who was a recluse, and he was a recluse because he was almost like a political, um, uh, almost like a political prisoner from like nineteen sixties era race riots, and I had I had this idea that he, um, in some way, had been like he was like a, he was active politically. He was like sort of, not quite like a Black Panther type revolutionary, but he was sort of like, almost like a Dr. King figure, and he got caught up in a sex scandal um, in which he was accused of raping a white woman and hadn't done it. Um, And it all came from, in high school I learned about the trial of the Scottsboro Boys, like that whole situation, and I had always been sort of fascinated by it. Um and so I know that in some way there was a connection to that. I think maybe he was accused of doing something on a train, like in that. I don't really remember because this is a long time ago. But I what I came to understand because I went to I went to graduate school to write that novel. Like I I I had written part of it, I applied to all schools with it. Um all my I took like some workshops locally that year that I was like applying to grad school and My writing teachers in Philly said that that was stronger than the short stories that I had tried to write as well. And they were like, you really are a novelist, like the way your mind works, the way that you layer stories, like you really are a novelist, which wasn't to say that I shouldn't write stories, but just that like, I was a novelist. And that made sense to me. Um, But during that time that I was in school, I kind of, I, I began to get a much stronger sense of what stories were specifically important for me as Dennis Norris II, as an individual, um, being the person that I am, the stories that I needed to tell. It sort of felt like anyone could tell that story, and that many people had told that story. Um, And other than the character being black and having southern roots, I didn't really see anything of myself in it. Um, but it took a lot of time and energy to figure out that those things were going to be core to my vision of my writing life and what I wanted to do. Um, when I started graduate school, I, I always tell people that when I started graduate school, I was very proud to be someone who wrote um, stories about white people, um, as well as stories about black people, stories about street people, stories about... Um, gay people, like I thought that that made me higher minded and more disciplined because I wasn't just writing stories that were rooted in my own experience and my own um, perspective. And um, I think that's great for some people, but <laughs> within a year of being in graduate school, I had lost all interest in really like not writing about queer femme, black people and, and queer black queer people of color in general. Um, So, the funny thing, though, is that during my first year, I took a research class, because this novel, I had to do a lot of research to write it, I felt. Um, And so I took a class about research, and my professor, um, who I... I run into him at events and things in the city all the time, and he's really lovely. He still asks me about that novel. Like, he's still like, that was a good novel. Like, are you gonna write that? Um, We were at one of my classmates. He's really been a mentor to one of my good friends from grad school, and so we were both at the wedding. And we were, I think, seated at the same table at the reception. He was like, "I still think about that novel, Dennis. You should write that novel." I was like, "I was like, thank you so much. I'm not going to write that novel. Like, I don't. It would have to change radically. I guess I could make the character queer, and maybe I would be interested. But I." I don't think I will, anyway. But the point is, that I do get asked about it occasionally. Wow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: ten years—almost ten years later.
0: <laughs> Are you working on a novel now?
1: I am. I am working really hard on a novel. I've been telling people for years that it was almost done, um, but now it kind of really is. Uh, but yes, I'm working on a novel. Um, and this novel, actually, I started also as a short story. I started it with the intention of just writing a long short story. Um, there's a Jhumpa Lahiri, especially very early in my writing career. Jhumpa Lahiri was a very influential writer for me because her sentences were just so beautiful. And she wrote about um, really everyday situations in, in ways that felt incredibly um, fascinating and thought-provoking. And just beautiful. And so in her third book, Unaccustomed Earth, which is a story collection, the first story is the title story and it's about 60, it's almost a novella, it's like 60 pages long. And it's really, it just sort of um, tells the story of this marriage that has kind of its first cracks um, in it. And I wanted to write a story like that. Um, I wanted to write something about length. I wanted to write something that had multiple perspectives but that was still contained. Um, And so that's kind of how the novel began. And all through the first semester of my second year um, at my MFA program, which was Sarah Lawrence, uh, the students in the, we were workshopped three times in, in that semester. And everyone kept being like, "This is a novel, Dennis. It's not. It's not a story. It's a novel." And by the by, the third workshop, one of my friends even like wrote a "novel" in her critique and had crossed it out and wrote like "story" with like a rolling eyes emoji <laughs> because I was insisting that it was a story. Um, and so it took about six months of work because I had started it, I think, in June or July of that summer, and I um, this was by this point, this was like December. And over winter break, I went home, and I was like, you know, I'm willing to to stick with this couple um, and the situation for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I had never felt that way. Prior to that, I would maybe revise a story once, um, and then I would be bored with it, and I would just write a new one. And I was like, I think I'm willing to work and work and work and work and work to get this right. And so let's try to write a novel. And that's kind of how it happened.
0: It sounds like a relationship.
1: Oh my god. It is. It's like a marriage and I'm not sure that it's a healthy marriage (laughs) to be honest. I think when you're writing, especially I think your first novel, um, this is my first really like I never finished that other novel. So this is my first and um, you know, it's taken me almost 10 years. If I were to, if I had signed a book deal tomorrow, by the time it was published, it would have been 10 years. And I think um that's very common. And so I'm not like, I mean, I wish I were going faster, but but I think that's very normal and it's worth it to get the work right. But the obsession that you kind of have and the self doubt, the amount of self doubt and insecurity that there is in, in everything, right? Like in every aspect of of shaping a narrative and and creating something that is not just a collection of sentences, but something where the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. I think is, is that the expression like you you obsess over every little detail, um, even when it's not prudent to do so. I think um, and. So I'm like, that's not healthy. Like, that can't be. That's like not what a good marriage looks like, but it's still like a marriage. You're like committed to seeing it through. So, um, yeah, I think it's a relationship. And I think that like when it's done and gone and knock on wood out in the world and I've moved on to something else, um, I think I'll look back on it with a great amount of love and tenderness, which um, when a good relationship ends, I think eventually you, you want to get to that point with your with your ex, right? Like it might be hard, and you, or you may not get to that point. Or if the relationship was trash and the ex is trash, then you, then don't feel pressure to get to that point. But um, you know, hopefully, I will feel like my book is trash.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in New York that for those ten years? Um. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have, because, so I went to grad school at Sarah Lawrence, and so after, when I was graduating, I was like, okay, I'll either move to Seattle, because I had visited Seattle recently and fallen in love with it, and I had some close friends there, and I would have had a good support system there, um, and it was beautiful, and just like a totally different thing, and I was very intrigued with the idea of doing things that I hadn't imagined for myself, um, and so I was like, i either move to Seattle or I'll move to Brooklyn, and it took me a few months to figure out where I was going to be. I had this like sort of side job through Sarah Lawrence last summer, so I lived on campus in Bronxville, and I had the whole summer to kind of figure out where I wanted to be. And um, I ultimately decided to do New York, because I thought if I, if I left New York then, then maybe I wouldn't come back. And I thought, I'd like to do it for a few years. I'd like to try it and see, um, and see what happens, and so I moved to Brooklyn, I moved to the Park Slope neighborhood. And I got a little two bedroom apartment with my best friend from high school who had just moved to New York um, and had, had had an internship and got a job um, at the same organization. And I did that whole first year in New York thing. I was completely broke. I worked two part-time jobs. I had one job that was every day from like 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Juilliard School. I was an administrative assistant. And it was really really cool because i was in another art-centered place um and i also knew some students there i had like gone to music campus with people that were like in graduate school at juilliard so that was kind of funny like i was running into these kids that i used to play with many years ago when i was in high school um and i also had a job at the company lush fresh and made cosmetics with the fancy bath bombs and the soaps and all of that and i um but this is the thing that was really difficult because of the hours at Juilliard, the two pm to seven pm, and the hours that the Lush store was open. I could not do another job on weekdays because there just wasn't enough time to do a shift beforehand. So I could only work at Lush on the weekends. And then being a part-time employee, there are certain laws about how many hours you can work and how long a shift can be. So I, my my ability to make money in those two jobs was kind of very limited because of these logistical things. So I was very very poor. Um, that year. Uh, yeah. But I, but I did it. I did it. And then, you know, I almost left New York after that first year because I was, I was like, I don't see this. I don't know how I'm gonna, like, this isn't sustainable. And then, um, my life changed in some ways and things became more sustainable. So, yeah.
0: Has music been a part of your life since you were young?
1: Yes. So music is a huge part of my life um, and, and always was. I mean, we'll start with the idea that like I grew up in church, um, so my, my father was a minister, and he he was a pastor for many years, and then right after I was born, my family moved from New Jersey to Cleveland and my father was like it was sort of like the Baptist equivalent of a bishop who was over like 40 churches. Um, so I was in church every Sunday, and my mom was really, really musical all her life, and played the piano, and I think had wanted to be a concert pianist, but grew up very poor, and between being Black—being a a poor Black woman in, like, the 50s, like, it was not—that was not a really viable thing for her, so she didn't. But because of her musical ability, like, she always led, like, the youth choirs um, in the churches where my dad was a pastor when my sisters were a kid. And so like singing in the choir was was big in my family. Um, My mom was also very insistent that all of us take music lessons. And she wanted us all to take piano lessons, but I said I wanted to play um, the violin because I had friends in school who had been playing violin since they were three. And I just like wanted, it looked beautiful and I wanted to play it. And so I was going to play the violin and then our next door neighbor was a professional violinist, and she told my mom, she said, you know, if you have Dennis to play the viola, he'll get a lot more opportunity because not that many people play the viola and even fewer play it well. So um, in school, I, looked, I tried the viola and I tried the violin and they looked the same and they felt the same. They're not the same, but when you're nine, you don't really know that. Um, and so I played the viola, and so I'm one of. I, I obviously did not end up becoming a professional violist but for a long time. I did want to do that, and um, there aren't that many violists out there, um, especially professional violists, who always played the viola. But I've never even had a violin lesson. Like I started on viola, and so we're like we're like our own little clique. You know, when I go to camp, are like who. which of of us started on viola and and which of us switched over because violin got too repetitive or or they preferred the sound of the viola was often the thing. Um, So that was kind of funny. The other thing I should say about music is that my sister um, is a singer. She's a jazz singer. She went to to college for vocal jazz performance and um, she was in an R&B a group that was really popular in the 90s called Sean They had some hits, including a little famous DJ that you still hear frequently at bars and clubs. And so, um, I mean, and I think that happened when I was like in second grade. So music was like everywhere. Like I'm a kid who grew up with a piano in the house. Um, my mom, and actually in order for me to even figure skate, my mom was like, you know, that you need to be practicing. The viola, like that, comes. School came first, and then, like the viola, and then if I wanted to do something else, I could. Um, so it was a huge, huge, huge part of my life, and it still is. Um, mostly in that I always play music when I'm writing. It really, really helps. Um, it, it helps me form sentences and figure out the rhythms, um, and think through how the sentence, how I want the sentence to fall on the ear of the reader, and that's very important to me and just always has been to my sensibility as a writer. And I remember I um, was really good friends with a writer T. Kira Madden, in grad school, we're still good friends, and we went to this summer writing workshop together, and um, the writer Mary Gateskill had workshopped my story, and it was really rough, and I went back to my dorm and I cried in Kira's lap and Kira took a look at the story and she just read the first couple sentences and she's like, well, it's obvious you were a musician. And I don't think she even knew that I had played music. She's like, I can tell by the sentences, like you were obviously a musician. And I was like, oh my God, I was. So it's, 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 it's an omnipresent part of my life even though I don't really play anymore.
0: What kind of music do you like to listen to when you write? Does it depend on what you're writing? It depends
1: a little bit on what I'm writing. But I rarely listen to music with lyrics because that's too many words that can get confusing. Um, but occasionally I do. It, it really depends. But I like to listen to stuff that's very atmospheric. Um, so, and a lot of more contemporary instrumental stuff. So, like, Philip Glass, the composer Philip Glass, is a very, very, um, a number of his compositions are like the most played on my Spotify and my iTunes um, because it's at like as soon as Philip Glass is on I can just start seeing all I can envision scenes um, words and sentences start coming to me it's very generative so a lot of Philip Glass um, and then a lot of music that sort of has similar characteristics um, so like actually the, the score to the film Moonlight Um, A lot of my novel has been written for that, and that composer, Nicholas Rattel, um, I love uh, love a lot of his stuff. Um, But when I've written stories, I've listened to pieces of music that really reflected the emotions that I was feeling either, that I was either trying to achieve in the story, and that I felt sort of represented or interpreted what I was feeling inside as I was writing the story. So there's this piece by Peter Gabriel that I think um, might also be from a soundtrack, but I'm not sure. It's called The Feeling Begins. Um, I know about it through figure skating. It's a very popular piece in figure skating. And Michelle Kwan did an iconic short program to it um, many, many years ago. And um, when I was writing a story of mine called Daddy's Boy, and it's published, I just put that piece on, and it was on repeat for two days. Um, and I wrote this very tiny short story in, um, in just a fury, and I was just listening to that. And that's very different, like that piece of music is very different from what I would normally listen to um, when I'm working on the novel. So I think it really does depend a lot on the project, but there's a way in which the music gives me something usually that I want to inject Into the work, I think. It's all very, like, ooh, but but it's part of my process.
0: Yeah, sets a tone. How does figure skating relate into your practice of making, or does it? It's
1: a good question. I definitely think it does. I mean, I think. Even like, like forgetting the actual practice of writing, I think that having been a figure skater really influences, has influenced the fact that I even have any kind of literary career to speak of because um, this is a sport where the learning curve is, is very straightforward, but you just have to chip away. Like you, you were just gonna fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. And fall and fall, and fall, and fall, and fall, until finally you get the skill right. There will be a first time, and you'll get it right. And then you'll probably continue to fall, and fall, and fall, and fall, and fall, and, and you'll get it right again. And then eventually, you'll know how to do the skill. And that's the process. It can take years to, le- to learn single skills. Um, and so that specific kind of determination, I think, is very similar to the process of the process of writing and then the process of publishing, um, where it's like rejection, 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 rejection more rejection, and, and, and it's just like that years of chipping away at it. Um, so that's the first thing. And I remember when I was in graduate school, my first workshop professor said that, he was like, you know, there is something to be said for talent, but he was like the, the biggest factor it's not going to be, in terms of who makes it and who doesn't, it's not going to be talent. It's going to be who, um, who makes it, who, who swims to the end of the lake, and who halfway there turns around and comes back to shore. And um, I think that I'm used to um, doing everything I can to swim to the end of the shore. Because that's how figure skating goes, and I always felt like if more of the people that had gone to graduate school had been with had been figure skaters, more of them would still be writers today. So, um, so, so that's how it influences sort of like everything about my writing life. I think there's a way in which when I'm when I'm skating and I have actually just recently started skating again. Like I have a coach, I take lessons once a week. Um it's wild, but it's so fun. Um and it's all still in there. Muscle memory it's been fifteen years since I've really done this shit and like it's still in there. I have a different body. I'm a different weight. <laughs> I'm older. I'm like in my thirties, but um but it's still in there. Muscle memory is very real. Um But there's a way in which you have to kind of be well rehearsed enough to turn your brain, to shut your brain off, you know, when you wanna like perform. Um, And that means you have to have like figured out every possible sort of scenario that could really happen with each skill and with your whole program. And um, I think that's kind of what it's like to actually be writing. There's a certain way in which I have to kind of shut my brain off sometimes um, and just like take what I'm sort of hearing or what's inside of me and pull it out of me. And it's like, if I'm too in my head, if I'm thinking too hard, if I'm like editing while I'm just trying to like get it out, then it's not going to get done. Um, And I can't always control my brain in that way, but that's like the task. And so I think um, doing a sport, having done a sport that is so much about yourself and about a certain kind of precision it's not take out the other guy, um, you really don't even have to be concerned with what everyone else is doing, like you just have to be concerned with your own process and your own technique and what you have to offer. Um, that sort of insularity, I think, translates really well to the writing process yeah.
0: <laughs> Will you um, speak a little more about
1: where you're from? Yeah. I, I'm happy to. I have a love-hate relationship with Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is where I grew up. Um, I was born in New Jersey, um, in South Jersey near Philly, where my mom's entire family is in, is in Philly. And when I was one and a half, um, my family and I moved to Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Um, It's a suburb of Cleveland. It's the first, kind of the first suburb on the east side, Um, and it's a really interesting place. Like, it's a very progressive um, suburb and area of Ohio, and um, it's very artsy, so like a lot, a lot of members of the Cleveland Orchestra, for example, live in Cleveland Heights, because it's very close to where they perform. and. Um, It's very close to Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Institute of Art, which is a really well-known art school and the Cleveland Institute of Music, which is a really well-known music conservatory. So it's just a very artsy place. So like, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a place where like the idea of cutting funding for the arts in the public schools would have been unthinkable. They would never have done it and have never done it. Um, Like not only was it, it was like unthinkable, like it, it's not an idea that would occur to anyone there. And so that was very cool because I grew up um, in this place where all of these interests of mine were supported and encouraged, um, and so I love that about it. It also felt like a sort of idyllic place, like the street that I grew up on was and still is like really beautiful, these big houses. They all look really different from each other. It's not like a. It's not like a um, housing development. Like every house looks completely different from the house next to it, um, and so that's that's very cool. And I always like enjoyed that. And my house in particular, like, has like a garret over the front entrance, which is really cool. Um, so that it was just a space that was very conducive to. Um, Imagination and creativity. Yeah.
0: You mentioned uh, growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. I wonder about um, early queer spaces that you had access to, or if there were any queer spaces
1: when you were a young person. Oh man. Well, it's really interesting, and this is maybe a, this is a stretch. Maybe in terms of the definition of queer or how I'm using queer. Um, but first, like I would say, there's an there's an idea sometimes among, among the world, and we're seeing it right now in the conversation around Pete Buttigieg. There's an idea that communities of color are more homophobic than others, and um, that, com- that that conversation right now is is growing its head specifically in relation to the fact that Pete Buttigieg has almost no support from the black community and people are saying it's because he's gay. And this is not true. That's not the reason. But um, the, the reason why I find that whole narrative really interesting is because I think there's an argument to be made for the idea that the black church in some ways is a queer space. Um, even <laughs> Kind of before maybe queerness had the language that it had, like, it was the idea that, that there could be a black space as far back as like slavery, for example, was a clearing of space. And that's what church was. That was the first place where black people could congregate on their own. Um, that was one of the spaces where literacy among black people during slavery specifically began. So, and and like it wasn't necessarily talked about, but I can say that like I remember men in the church who were clearly gay men. I didn't understand that as a child and it wasn't named. But I can look back now and say, Oh, 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 okay. Like I can I, I have that now that I'm an adult. So um and all of, many of the things that I have taken refuge in as a queer person now my earliest connection to those things happened in church, so it's interesting because I think um, I think there was a space that, without me knowing it, maybe it wasn't a queer space exactly, but it was a space that was porous enough for my queerness to um, seep out. And there was space for that, because that was, a, that was sort of okay in those spaces. The other thing that's much more straightforward, ironically, is that when I mentioned earlier that I would talk on the phone with these um, friends, and they were friends to my parents' work, um, it was this group of friends that I had, and there were two brothers. One was a year older than me, and one was a year younger than me. And their parents worked for my dad. Um, they are now both gay. And one of them and I used to kind of fool around a little bit when we were in high school. Nothing really serious, but um, but we would fool around a little. Um, and then the other two friends were two um, girls, straight, still straight as far as I know. Um, and they their father was a pastor at one of the churches in the association that my dad was over. So um, what's interesting is that 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 friend group, in its own way, was its own little queer space. Um, and maybe that kid was the first person who didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with like what we were talking, he and I were talking about or doing, um, didn't seem tortured about it in any way. I was a little tortured about it, um, until I just decided to not be tortured, which sounds crazy but it's true. Um, so in some ways my relationship to church was hugely influential to, um, my queerness and the embracing of my queerness. Um, yeah, was that, I forget. was that the question?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I um, yeah, I was asking about queer space and that is, um, uh, that's a perfect answer. Um, what, what has queer community or community looks like for you in New
1: York? Oh, it's been amazing. Um, it's funny. So, well, I just feel like I have the best friends. I'm so lucky. Um, my my life in New York feels like the first place where I've um, kind of created a chosen family. That's not really true because I have an incredible group of friends from college. Many of them are in New York now. I have incredible friends from graduate school. But there's something about, to me, the idea that the friendships that I've cultivated in New York City um, are not really related to institutions. In that way, in the way that like a group of college friends are related, to like they're all at the institution at the same time, there are certain things about it, about them. Um, at the core of, of that community is a friend of mine who went to music who I went to music camp with in 2004, and at the time he had a girlfriend, and I told everyone at camp that that was obviously a, a farce, which it was, <laughs> um, and that's kind of this terrible on my part. I didn't. Have- I mean, I wasn't saying anything that anyone wasn't thinking, but you know, he maybe wasn't quite ready. Um, But anyway, we were always in touch on Facebook, and he reached out to me when I when I got that little apartment with my best friend from high school. It happened to be six blocks from where he lived, and I had posted on Facebook like, "I'm going to be on this intersection, like this room to live." I'm so excited! It's exactly where I wanted to live, and so he he reached out and was like, "We should hang out," Um, and literally. Five blocks from you, and so he actually worked at Lincoln Center at the Metropolitan Opera, and I think he got me a job interview. Um, he like passed along my resume to someone for a job at the Chamber Music Society. Um, but then we kept trying to get together and didn't. And then he came to my birthday party and he brought some some his sister and one of our other really close friends from camp who I hadn't seen in years and we became really good friends and then I introduced him to my friend from Juilliard. I was trying to fix them up, but that didn't happen, but we all became like best friends. And this whole sort of group kind of blossomed from there. It was just like, 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 Oh, you'll like these people. And, and, and we just kind of came together and it was really amazing to sort of watch that evolution without the bubble of being in the same institution. Um, and so so there's that community, right? And that community is very queer. Um, my college friends um, are very queer, largely. Um, like some of my friends who are women who I thought would end up with men that have just married women this year, and which is amazing. Um, and also like my college group looks like a Benetton ad, like we're just all different colors. Which is um, so joyous for me, but and so there's that community and, I, and like some of my friends from different parts of my life have like become friends, which I love. But then there's also something about literally just living in New York City and feeling like you're in community with the other people who live here, even who you don't, even people that you don't know. And you know, you get something where you're on the street and you go like, "Oh, I can tell you're a tourist by the way that you're walking," right? Versus someone who like lives here. And just like get out of my way, um, you know. There's community on the subway sometimes, especially when something happens, and, and the subway breaks down or or something. And and um, and I love that. And when I was a kid, my oldest sister lived in New York for eight or nine years. Um, she lived in Brooklyn, and so I was in New York um, often for a kid growing up in Ohio, and. I always felt like she talked about New York City, like she was in a relationship with it, like it wasn't like was an entity, like it was a person. And I didn't understand the idea that a place could be like that. Um, and once I, within a year of having lived in New York City, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> like I just get it. And like everyone else who lives here gets that and knows that because it is. And like, yes, like without the people, it's just a piece of land, right? But, um, and so it's really the people that do that, but in that, it becomes its own, that spirit becomes its own thing, and it becomes like the sort of spirit of New York, New York. And then that forms, that creates a bond that you have. And so, um, that is community for me, and it's part of why I maybe will stay here. We'll see, but, but yeah, like I love that about it. And that's why I, I feel like people who live in New York are so misunderstood, like people think we're mean and we're not mean. We, we want things to be functional and we talk about it, but we're not mean, we're not mean-spirited. I lived in Philadelphia for a year before I came here for graduate school. And if I was lost on the sidewalk, people would not like stop me, ask me if I was okay, and try to help me give me directions. I would come to New York once in a while, even then, and if I looked lost on the sidewalk, people, people, like multiple people would come up to me, take out their phones, help me figure out where to go, and then they'd get in arguments with each other about who's giving better directions. <laughs> like, it's a, it's, it's amazing. I remember a year and a half ago, I got hit by a car crossing the street, and um I, was like I mean I broke my ankle I broke my wrist I have some back issues from it but it's all fine I'm like better now but um, this was midnight and I was with four friends three friends but in addition to my three friends two different people like were right there and gave me their business cards and were like if you need witnesses when you sue like we will we will do that like yes you should probably call my what like we're helping me out and then. This was in Chelsea, there was a big skyscraper, like apartment building, um that this happened in front of. And a guy comes down from the top floor with a giant water bottle and a huge bag of ice and he's like, I saw everything. I am an attorney, <laughs> like if you need help, um I don't specialize in this, but you know, whatever I saw everything, here you go. Like like I'll wait with you with your friends until the ambulance comes. Like if you need anything. Like you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that would happen in Philly. Because Philly, in Philly, people actually are angry and they have reason to be. But, um, you know, like, it's, it's like a, I don't know, I feel like this is a magical place and community, um, is a real thing here. I don't know if it is in other cities. Uh, but it might be. I just haven't lived in those cities. So, I don't know.
0: What spaces have been important to you in this?
1: Um, I mean, there's the personal spaces, obviously, like, my friends and I, um, have an apartment. It feels like it's all our apartment, but it's, my friend Pam has this apartment that we refer to as a place with this address all the time when we talk about it. It's been passed around in our little family. Like, I may be next on the list to live there, um, and we want to keep it in our little, family um, just just like kind of like the apartment in, in the TV show Friends um, and so that space is really important to me in the, the metaphorical space that my friends and I created. In terms of like the city, actually um, Bryant Park is one of my favorite um, places in New York City and when I was in graduate school um, and I would come I would take the train in from Bronzeville and I would meet like my friends we'd always meet at Bryant Park it was just a central easy place to meet i always thought it was beautiful there were always interesting things going on there um, and so it's been this constant throughout my um life i'm i'm notoriously really really bad at like directions i get lost all the time um, i i truly don't have a sense of it like i i can't figure out sometimes when i'm underground like how to get off the subway and, and the the Position myself in the best way, I may. and I just take whatever exit to get up. And once I get up, I can kind of, if it's a place I know, I can kind of orient myself a little bit. So, like, I'm just really, really bad. Like, that part of my brain like doesn't work. So, um, Bryant Park was a place also that was kind of like a landmark where I could orient myself. I could like come to Bryant Park and be like, okay, I know that that I need to go in this direction or that direction, um, and it is kind of in the center. So, um, it's always been really important to me. Um, for that reason, and it's just like a beautiful place. That I love. Um, I love the Highline. and one of my best friends works um, has worked for them for about five years as well, like in the in the office doing like fundraising. And I love, um, I love the Highline. Line. I've had some really great memories there. Um, and I love, love, love Lincoln Center. You know, it's like such. Um, an incredible space for the performing arts, and I love the fountain in the middle of Lincoln Center. I love that fountain. And that first year that I worked in New York, and I worked at the Juilliard School, my office was right, like when you enter Juilliard, there are this huge glass floor to ceiling, several floors up, like windows, but just the front of the building. Um, and my office was, right there. Like, like you'd walk in the main entrance, you'd go up to the security desk, and then you'd turn around and almost walk back to where those windows were on the second floor, and there was my office. Um, and because my hours were 2 to 7, when it was getting dark in that last hour or two, I could look out, and I would just see all the lights in Lincoln Center. And I felt so much love for the city, and so much love for my, my sad, extremely poor, um, Entry level existence, Um, and sometimes when I would leave work, I would just like, like I would instead of getting on the one right there, Mm -hmm. I would walk through Lincoln Center, go by the fountain, and walk down to Columbus Circle, and I just loved walking that strip and feeling like a real grown up making my way in the city. Um, So I'm always, I'm always like looking for jobs in Lincoln Center. I would love to work there again um, because I really love the performing arts um, and I like being around it um, and I like the people that do it. So it's like arts spaces. um, Beautiful spaces are the ones that are really important to me. Um, And of course like queer spaces. Hell's Kitchen um, used to be very important to me. It's It still feels very sort of white, cisgender, gay male space. Um, but it was the first time I kind of felt safe-ish in that in in that kind of space, um, was my kind of made this group of friends. But I have found that um, as a queer person of color, if I'm looking for those spaces which are really important to me. They're moving around, like right. Like we don't have like one set of neighborhood that's ours or one set space, and so it makes me think of um, I don't know if, if you read Harry Potter growing up, but there's the Room of Requirement that just only shows up when you require it. I sort of feel like that's um the mystery of my like QPOC spaces um, in in New York. It's like Poppy Juice, you know, happens every month. And I'm not really a big partyer, so I'm, I haven't gone to Poppy Juice very many times, but. For me, it's like sometimes the space that I create with my um, podcast co-hosts on Food for Thought um, or certain f- folks that I, we just get together and have a dinner party or go out to eat and that little, that table is a space. Um, and we create space in that, in, in that restaurant or in that place and um, so it's a movable space as well that's really important to me.
0: Um, you mentioned you just mentioned Harry Potter, and you mentioned Harriet the Spy earlier. <laughs> what what types of books and um, media do you, do you find inspiration in? Do you find um, resonance with?
1: Um. So, I it's funny. With books, I have a pretty wide taste for reading, um, even though I feel like what I write is rather specific. So I love, I mean, I certainly love, like, sort of realistic literary fiction. That's probably my first love, and in a way always has been. so like I love the writer Elizabeth Strout, who just published a book called Olive Again um, and I love uh, the first the first Olive book Olive in Church. I love her entire body of work. Um, but from there, like I also really enjoy um, like fun, not like romances but like fun sort of like love stories. so. I'm forgetting the name of the book right now, but there's a gay sort of romance that just came out earlier this year. And it's like the Prince of England and like um, like the president's son or something. I can't remember the name right now. I'm picturing the cover though. And I'm really excited to read that. I haven't read it yet, but I'm really excited to read that. And I know I'm going to love it. Um, I also like, Love some science fiction, like I, I, I love Ender's Game, and I love um, Kindred by Octavia Butler, um, and I think the common thread in a lot of the like the um, the fiction that I like is I like stories where um, there's a hero, but I like stories where that hero comes to the edge of maybe not being a hero. We're, we're, or where sometimes the hero is a villain. And and that idea that there's all of that duality. I think that's like one of... I I, could, I feel like I could say that about Olive Kittredge like as a character. In Elizabeth Starr, these are, again, realistic literary books, but I feel like I could say that about her um, and many characters in her books. Um, and what that really is about is just this idea that I understood from a from a pretty young age that, and I don't remember where it came from though, maybe reading but understanding that we were all as human beings fully capable of everything that was within our grasp we were fully capable of being incredibly compassionate and tender and loving and were capable of great cruelty and I remember um I don't know if this was—again, I don't know if this was high school or college, but I remember at different points, you know, some sort of story in the news would come out about some person committing some horrible crime, and the people in their life would just be like, I can't—they don't seem capable. And I always thought that's the most ridiculous thing to say. Of course they're capable. We're all capable. Like, I just—I never understood that thinking. So stories that really embrace that fullness are probably the most important to me. And I think that um, those can be found anywhere. They can be found in any genre. They can be found in any sort of type of narrative, in any any like time period. I mean, you could probably say that about Odysseus um, as well. And you could, I forgot what his wife's name is. Penelope, right? Um, you could probably say that about Penelope. Um, had it's been a long time since I've read or even thought about that. But um, but yeah. So anyway, I think that that's what I'm most drawn to. Um, I'm also, and this is part of where I do love poetry. I'm also drawn to work where there isn't necessarily a narrative line, um, where there's just beautiful lyricism, and there's um, slices of moments. Um, or slices of life, there's that that phrase like slice of life, Um, and you're just seeing something play out in some way, and maybe you don't even see the whole thing, Um, and that's sort of how I, my brain that does love a narrative, that's sort of how I sometimes think about poetry, when when my brain wants to like give it narrative, Um, but I'm very interested in fragments of things, Mm -hmm. so um, yeah, <laughs> um, I hope that's so not too esoteric.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I love what you said about the room of requirement and like it being a moving space for your POC community. I wonder about how your room of requirement looks for writing and how you like mm-hmm. create that for yourself um, as a working person.
1: Girl, it's hard. <laughs> and it's hard, and this is the part of the challenge of New York, because New York is so freaking expensive that it's hard to make room for things that aren't necessarily paying you. Um, so my room of requirement, to be very literal, um, I need a desk, ideally a big desk. Really ideally something almost like a dining room table is what I like. Um, <laughs> I do not have that because I live in New York. But I, I do have a nice-sized desk in my room. Um, I need a decent chair that gives decent support because I have back issues, probably from all the figure skating and the viola, which are not always great on the back. Um, and I need um, heat. It I cannot be cold. You know how some people get um, hangry when they're hungry? <laughs> I don't... It takes a lot for me to get hangry because I'm very used to just sort of Like, I don't like to feel full, so um, I can be hungry and be comfortable for a long time. Um, But if I'm cold, I will turn into a bitch. Like, (laughs) I just will be nasty. I will be moody. I will not be able to concentrate on whatever work I'm trying to do. Like, I cannot be cold. It is just not, it's ugly for everyone. Um, So, I really need all of that, and so a couple years ago, I got the good fortune to go to the McDowell Colony, and um, they take artists of all different kinds of um, disciplines, Um, but I think most residencies that take artists of all different disciplines kind of like writers and will take more writers because um, we need less, you know? We don't necessarily need a whole bunch of space. We just need a desk and a chair, and we need to be fed, and like you can leave us alone. You know, and other people need huge installation spaces and all these different kinds of things. And we don't need that. So, when you get into the McDowell colony, they, um, they send you a questionnaire of like, what you need. Um, and they will do everything they can to make it happen. It's really an incredible, incredible place. Um, it is heaven. And so all I said was that I need, I was like, I need a big desk if I can. Sometimes I'm writing longhand, and sometimes I'm writing typing, but sometimes I'm going from one to the other, like, very quickly. And also, I have notebooks around, and I have like novels that I'm reading that are maybe influencing my writing a little bit. That are going to be scattered there, and so like I just I take up all this space if I have it, Um, and it's good for me to have it. It gives a little bit of order to my otherwise very chaotic brain. And so um, I said that I said I needed good heating because I was going to be going in April and May, Um, and they ended up putting me in this studio that they had just renovated the prior summer. Um, so I was like the third person in it since they renovated it, and it was gorgeous. I had the biggest desk that I saw. You know, you become friends with the other people, and sometimes like you go into each other's spaces and like hang out or chat or whatever. Um, and it's I never saw a desk that was bigger than that one in any studio. I didn't go into every studio, but um, I went into many of them. I never saw a bigger desk, and so I was like, check. They listened to me, <laughs> um, even if it wasn't the biggest desk, it was big enough for me. Um, it felt almost like a dining room table, but it was a desk. Um, so I had the biggest desk, and I also had this studio that um, had this great heating system that I could control. It was very like environmentally friendly, which is great, um, and so I, could, I had good heating. And I was like, they really like, listened to me. They gave me the two things that I asked for. It was amazing. So I wanted to recreate that in New York, but I haven't been able to quite. so you just like learn how to like um, work with like fragments of what you need, I think um, in your in your real life because there are limitations um, and so that's what I've done but I don't need that much. I just need some coffee during the day, some wine at night, the desk, the chair. Um, I don't need the internet, (laughs) even though I have it. I don't need it. I would be better off if I didn't have it. Um, but yeah, those are the things. And then sort of beyond the literal, um, I, I need to not feel needed, actually. So it's harder for me to write. it's harder for me to write when my roommates are home. It's actually so right now. I have these great roommates. They're really nice, um, and we're friendly, but we're not like close, you know. Um, but it's kind of perfect because I don't feel like they need me. Whereas when I lived in in my earlier apartments, I lived with very close friends, and that, in many ways, is wonderful. Like it's, and I kind of miss it. Um, <laughs> I think I'm gonna like text the two roommates um, and be like. Let's go out for drinks. It's like, they're cool, I like them. But um, when I live with people I'm very close to, it's it can be hard because you feel more needed just because. you know. I One of my dearest, dearest friends from college, like when we lived together, she, I'm the type of person who would come home from work and I need to like go into my room and shut the door for, for 30 minutes and just like lay down and just like be and just like have quiet. And She's the type who comes home and is like, "Hello, I'm home," and like wants to talk and process through her day and process through your day. And we knew, we've been close friends for a long time, so we knew that that was going to be something we would have to negotiate. And we had lived together in college, so we knew that, and we did. And it was not too difficult, but we had to have some conversations about how to navigate that um, for our own needs. And and so. Um, I, yeah, if there's anything that, like, if there's a pet in the house, which there is not right now, um, it's just, it just creates a thin barrier, like, I have to not, I can't completely lose myself in it. Um, so, the other thing about, like, residencies that's so great is, like, like, even if I have, if I wake up and I have four hours to write, and then I have to do, I have a commitment, I have to do something, I have to go somewhere, I have to see someone, um, I can't completely lose track of time. So um, I just have to be clued in a little bit to the real world, you know? And um, I think it's really hard to remove yourself from that space unless you're at like a residency. Um, So I do love, I do love residencies in places like McDowell because, because you are really fully allowed to do that and it's easier to tell yourself that you're allowed to do that in ways that Like, you might tell yourself you can do that at home, but it can be hard, Um, and logistics happen, and life happens, and you have to do things, so. Um, uh, So, yeah, I would say that that's a lot more than sort of what you asked for, but um, finding that mental space um, is the big thing.
0: I think um, on the subject of time, uh, we were talking a little bit about kind of, Thinking about time non-linearly, um, and I wonder about your thoughts on time, either in thinking about your life or, um, in thinking about narratives.
1: Oh my god, I have so many. I have thoughts <laughs> on time, I have questions on time. Um well the first thing is like, in just in my own life, like I'm never, on, I'm almost never on time. It's terrible. It's like a real struggle for me to be on time and it's not, that my life is necessarily so packed. Sometimes it is, but um, it's not that it's so packed necessarily. I just like am really bad at like that linear thinking of of like okay, I have to do this at this time because this might take this long. But, like I'm just like not very good at that kind of planning, um, and that's also a challenge. That same sort of function is challenging for me in other ways too. Um, so it's not just this, but um, that's very, it's just very difficult for me. Like the fact that I was on time to this <laughs> is, um, is is. I mean, I was trying really hard all morning. I was like, okay, okay, you gotta be on time. You need to be on time. She rented a room. It's reserved. Like, you don't have all day. <laughs> like, you don't want to just email her and be like, "You're I'm 30 minutes late. Um, but this is like my life all the time. And I'm always ha- I'm trying to do everything I can to sort of figure out how to like make it happen. Um, and I'm getting better, but it's just hard for me. Um But I think that that's influenced by the way that I do think about time, because I don't think of it as being a linear thing, as we said. I think that, um, you know, memory and intuition are things that we experience, and they're things that we can experience in any way and at any time, and so... To me, it's just this one swirling mass of flight of like life, um, and what's really interesting to me is that in those first couple of years after graduate school, um, when I was writing, I learned, I realized something. Um, I wrote this like short story that became the first story that I published, and when I finished it, the minute I finished it, I was like, oh this will be published. This is gonna be my first thing to be published. Um, and it's like three pages long, and in the middle section, I go, just I just tell the backstory and go back in time to this character's childhood. And I was like, I realized that what seemed like the most simple thing in the world to write, um, which is something that was chronological, was not something I seemed able to do. I could not even write three pages without going back in time, without doing backstory, without going back. And I was like, that's just not how my brain works. Um, and around the same time, I started reading the novel Love by Toni Morrison. And whenever I read Toni Morrison, I look for all of the interviews, all of the conversations that she did around a book promoting it. And a lot of these things were on the radio and have been put on onto podcasts now so you can find them in really interesting ways. And um, and it's also important to note that at that time, I had a full-time job working for the Harlem Children's Zone, um, and I worked for a team of writers. Um, we would go into the after-school sites and, and kind of do literacy intervention. Um, and my supervisor, I think, at that time, was my friend, um, the poet Ricky Laurentiis, who is somewhat of Jerry Morrison, maybe scholar. Um, and there, it, was, it was a team of black writers, so we were all deeply influenced by Toni Morrison and would have these incredible conversations um, around, around her work and her life and that of other black writers. Um, anyway, so I'm listening to this like conversation that she has talking about her novel Love and in it she, she says, well, you know, time isn't linear. She just says it like that. And she starts talking about memory and she starts talking about the ways in which we move back and forth in time in our lives every day, all the time. And I was crossing the street, headed to the subway to go to work. And my mind was completely blown. I think I stopped in the middle of the street and then someone honked and I was like, okay, no, I have to keep going. (laughs) Um, Because I had never heard anyone say this. I had never had language for it. And I thought, there is the language right there for the way that I write and the way that I live my entire life um, time is made up and it's not linear and we try to beat it into our lives and to beat it into people that it is but it's not um, I had just never encountered that idea before and I immediately adopted it and I said this is this is correct this is how my brain works um, and then I started trying to kind of like research it a little bit more and like think about it um, and I came across something and I don't remember what it was, I don't remember where it was, I don't know if I could find it again, and I don't even remember everything that it said. <laughs> um, so it's like silly that I'm even going to talk about it. But I, it was like a think piece or something, probably. And it talked about this idea that time is actually, like, as a construct um, or as a concept, is a white supremacist um, thing. And it sort of went into how it's—it's it, it's one way in which, um, in which those in power have found a way to to exercise control and influence upon those who are not in power. Um, I think I probably read it very quickly at work, so I can't say anything more sort of intelligent than that. That's just what I will call it, kind of. And I once tried to find it again and I like couldn't, um, but I found that idea very interesting because I certainly, the places where I was finding freedom around this thing that felt like such a construct because, um because I, I, was, I, I used to be so bad at being late all the time, like my friends would get really pissed at me. They would tell me, you know, for a 45 minute time earlier for a reservation so that I would show up on time for when the reservation actually was. And sometimes this is just wise when you're dealing with me. Um, but I, it was like a little bit of a point of contention and that's when I also was like, okay, I really do need to try to like figure out how to be better about this, and I have. But um, the place where I found freedom around time and where I felt like my understanding, whatever it was, or my experience, or how my brain worked or processed it, um, was in the work of the person that I think of as maybe the freest-minded writer of color or scholar um, that I had encountered. I mean, think about it, Toni Morrison is the one who without taking anything away from the work of James Baldwin or the, the work of Richard Wright, um, she's the one who, when she's read, when she talks about Invisible Man, the first thing she says is, invisible to whom? Not to me. And that's another like moment where your mind is going, because then immediately you understand that she's saying, who is this written for? What gaze is this written for? You know, I had never thought about that idea—that like a book is written for a certain gaze, um, and that we all are all assuming most of the time that that gaze is white, because the craft is going to be different, the language is going to be different if it's not written for a white reader. Um, I remember, like, coming. I remember, like. It was, I think it was that year that I was applying to graduate schools and I was, like, reading Toni Morrison and I was, like, listening to some of these. She, For every book that she wrote just about, she, um, did an interview with Charlie Rose on his show, and so, and these were amazing conversations, and you see clips of them flying around the internet now, um, because she just, like, sometimes, they were friends, but I think she, she sometimes was very tough on him and, and for good reason. So you see the clips like easily, like on Twitter, on the internet, but, but that was the first place where I heard her use that language, And I remember not really understanding what she was saying, but understanding that was important and trying to understand it, like listening to it over and over and thinking about it. And, and, um, it took a few years before I began to understand how that influenced me and the purpose of my work and what I was trying to do. but in all of that, my, I guess my point is, is that like, like this person, who by this point I did understand these things, here she was saying that we're all wrong about how time works. And so for me, it's not lost on me that this is the person who has said this, whereas here are the people, these are the people that feel very tied to it and feel like we must all be very tied to it and live our lives in an orderly way that, um, that works in accordance with this. Obviously (laughs) when your friends are waiting for you for 45 minutes, that's rude. I get that. But, um, but this, these two different ways of thinking about it, um, it's not lost on me that one way is in one place and one way or, or in one community and one way is in another community. So, um. That sort of influences the way that I approach it with regards to my work. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it does.
0: <laughs> um, thank you. So it's, it's been an hour and 15 minutes, Okay. Um, and <laughs> I want to be sensitive to the time of the <laughs> <laughs> um but I wonder if there is um I guess if there's just anything else you'd like to add
1: um so okay do these like go like is this just gonna be housed here or is this a thing that's gonna like go out into the world like should I be like oh you should listen to my show you should like read you, my book you, like you
0: can yeah' it's, um it's going to be uh, digital archive that is free and accessible online. Um, So cool. That's so cool. And then uh, there will also eventually be a transcript of it that will be sent to you and that will also be available with the audio.
1: Amazing. That's so cool. Um, I don't know. I feel okay. I, um... If there's anything, I don't really have anything else I have to do today, just go home and write. So, like, if there's other stuff that you, like, I know that some of the stuff around gender we didn't really talk about, so if you want to, we can, but if you feel good about where it is, I feel good about it, too. Um,
0: I would love to talk a little bit about gender.
1: Yeah, we can. We absolutely can. I'm I'm happy to.
0: Um, Yeah, we've been talking more about queer spaces, Mm -hmm. Um, but... And talking some about growing up, um, where were, like how did you see gender as a young person and um, how mm-hmm. did that change throughout your life?
1: Um, so <laughs> that's a really interesting thing, because I feel like it's not something that I was like really conscious of as a young person, but it was very much there. I, I'm i coming from a two-parent household with a father and a mother, um, and in my household there were four children, two sisters and two brothers, and um, and I was the youngest. And so when you're the youngest and you ha- and I was the youngest by a lot my siblings are 17, 15 and ten years older than me. My parents were 41 and 50 when I was born. so when you're the youngest person and you're like like a baby and then a toddler and a child in that scenario with all those adults around um, you young people are like sponges anyway but you really um, you really there's just a lot to absorb um, with all that like sophistication happening, um, things that are sophisticated for your understanding. So I was certainly picking up messages, and there were messages about, like there were messages that were coming from the home, and there were messages that were coming from the world. And so in my home, um, the sort of message was that there was not um, any difference between, in terms of men and women in terms of like, you know, what you should do with your life, having choices, um, being educated, having careers, being ambitious versus not, there was no difference um, in in that, um, and that's sort of what was said. But in the world, um, there was difference, right? There are certain things that women should aspire to and certain things that men should aspire to, and then for me as a kid, my dad absolutely had this very active career and was the breadwinner. And my mom didn't work for a long time when I was very young. I think there, there were a few years where she wasn't working. And then when we moved to Cleveland, she was working, but sort of like part-time, very casually and all of that. So I felt like there were ways in which the messaging was one thing in my home, but what was happening was sort of felt like to my sort of shallow child understanding was another thing. Um, even though I sort of, as like man, I got older began to learn that like like that like my dad always wanted my mom to have her very active career. she had been trained as a teacher and we wanted her to like go for that um and I think she did not totally feel that she wanted to do that in that way. um so I had these like sort of aggressive ish I guess, like, impressions. Um, But that felt really unique. And I don't know that that was. I mean, this was the 90s. It wasn't like, it was the 40s. Um, But, and it it didn't really, like I just understood then what was expected of me. Um, And one of the ways in which that did play out was that you know, I played the viol growing up, um, and when I was in high school, I was like, I want to be a professional violist, and I like felt that way for four years, closer eight years because I felt that way mostly through college too, but I didn't go to music school. Um, and what was interesting is that my parents were certainly the type of parents who were like, we will support whatever you want to do, but my dad was kind of like, you're really smart. Like you used to want to be a lawyer? Like don't you want to be a lawyer? Um, and then when I graduated college, soon after that, I realized I wanted to be a writer, and of course I was applying to these MFA programs. And what was interesting is that like my sisters, my one sister had gone had gone to music school and was was now a singer, and my other sister worked in theater in New York for nine years. She worked at the public theater. She became the company manager. She went from being like a production assistant or like intern maybe even starting out to eventually being the company manager. So she was in the arts. And I think that like there was an underlying assumption of well that's okay for them they'll marry a man who will provide. But you are going to marry a woman you will be the provider. So like You really had either better be a good enough to to get into an orchestra that'll really pay you, or maybe you want to be a lawyer because you're a really smart kid. Um, And I think that was sort of underlying there. So as I began to recognize my sexuality in high school, I began to think about um, this in this way. The other thing is that for high school, I went to an all-boys school. playing an all boys prep school uh, in a place called Hunting Valley, Ohio. I will, um, And I was forced to sort of think about it because I, you know, I don't want to, um, like I need to first acknowledge the fact that it was an incredible privilege in certain ways to be able to go there, so that my friends could afford to send me there was huge, that like I got a phenomenal education. I got a lot of individual attention, um, especially during my college application process. Um, and I got to take a lot of classes that I wouldn't have gotten to take if I had gone to a public school in my neighborhood, which was quite a good school. Um, but there were just like some classes that they didn't offer. Events. you know, the teachers with specific backgrounds could choose to teach certain classes, selectives, So that was really cool. But it was a really difficult place for me, and I think that um, there was this sort of unbridled masculinity in the space. Um, there was a lot of boys with boys among the leadership and how they like handled um, the students. And I just did not fit in at all. Um, and it's not that I was like, I don't even—I don't even know that I knew that a person could be born um, male and feel like they were a woman. Like I didn't—I had no language for anything around that. I don't think until I got to college. Um, so I just remember understanding in a very keen way. That I would be would have been happier at the girls' schools, which were Laurel or Halfway Brown, versus at my school, um, and that I would have felt more a part of things. I would have felt um, a kinship in a way, um, and that's not to say that my experience was all bad at the school, and it's not to say that. Um, I didn't in some ways feel a part of things because there are ways in which I did but it was very interesting. Once I came out, um, a lot of the boys became very protective of me, um, which was sweet. It was otherizing in its own way, but it was like sweet. But like, even with that, um, and it did become a more positive experience was I just owned who I was. um, I felt like I was like, a girl in a space surrounded by men, that's just kind of how I felt. Um, And so I really began to become aware of it again without having the language. And nothing ever crystallizes for me until I have the language and then it sort of like snaps into place, it's like the ears fit when that happens. Um, And so it was college that I kind of began to understand, oh, there's a thing called being trans, this exists. Um, and that was like really wild for me. Um, and there was a trans student, uh, in our school, in, in college, um, and it's interesting now because I sometimes think, like, if I publish my novel and if it gets like big, there so there's a, um, really big author that graduated from my high school, If you, I don't know if you remember the novel, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. But he graduated from that school many, many years ago in the '90s. His mother taught there. She wrote my college recommendations. Um, They have a writing program at that private school that I went to, like for kids who want to write. I did not participate in it, but they have like a fellowship, a fellowship they call it that you that you can do. Um, So, like, they um, are certainly very proud of Anthony, and like, it would be a thing for them. Like, my book was big. That would be a thing, you know. But I. Am not a cisgender man, so I sort of wonder how they would handle that as a boys' school that graduates men. Um, how they would feel about that? I'm not really connected to the school, in very in in many ways, I'm on the alumni email list. Um, someone found me through LinkedIn, but I I wonder about that, like how that would ha- how that how that would go, you know? Um, I think about the fact that like if I do a book tour. I mostly wear women's clothes to begin with anyway, but if I did a book tour, I probably wear a lot of dresses and jumpsuits. So if I did an event there, when when Anthony published his first, I think, collection of short stories, it was around the time that I was a student there and he came and read a story during a morning assembly. Like, I don't know if it would, you know, but if I, it would just be really interesting to be like, this is an alum and I walk in in a dress. Like, I, but I, and I don't know how they would handle that. I hear it's still a very conservative place. So um, I think about these things, but, um, but anyway, it, it was when I was in college that I first began to think that I might be somewhere on this on this spectrum of people who are not just cisgender male or cisgender female, and um, the, And my sophomore year of college is interesting. There was a big news item because um, Jazz Jennings was a who was a Jazz Jennings is a trans, I guess, woman now, instead of a girl, I think she's 18, 19, 20, but at that time she was a young child, like maybe six, and parents were fully supporting her transition, and um, Barbara Walters did a whole special on it, and it generated a lot of attention and a lot of conversation. Um, so there was, there was some interesting conversation about tr- being trans in the media, but at that time the entire conversation was I was born in the wrong body. I have the wrong body. I was born in the wrong body, and I knew from the time I was could speak that I was actually a girl, um, or I was actually a boy, and I had never felt that way. I had never hated my anatomy. Um, I wasn't particularly tied to it, but I I never felt like I wanted it gone necessarily. So that that was my only understanding at that point. So then I thought, well, I must not be trans because I don't hate my body, um, and we didn't really have the language for being non-binary, being gender non-conforming, like, all of the ways in which we can, um, be a part of that spectrum without nailing ourselves down to one specific place, like, we didn't have all that language. So I just sort of thought there were moments where I was like, well, there's a home for me, but I guess it's not. and it wasn't until the last few years um, when that conversation has really um, happened, and that language has really been there, that my own understanding of myself and where um, I fit in uh, has kind of crystallized. Um, and like I said, it's, it's when I have the language that things make sense for me. So um, um, maybe the next step is to me for me to do something where I create my own language. <laughs> um, but yeah, that. That was a very long answer, but um, my understanding of gender, of course, is always evolving. I don't necessarily feel like I have a better understanding now than I did when I was ten. Um, I guess I do. Um, I feel. I certainly feel like I. There are like more colors to the palette, you know. Um, but it's it's as varied as humanity itself, which is amazing.
0: Great. Um I I think that's great. I think that maybe we should end there. Okay. I like um, that. Yeah. Like thank that. you. Thank you so much.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> this was so fun. Oh my gosh, such a good conversation. Uh I'm a rambler. I should tell everyone that interviews me that I'm a rambler. I just, Go, go, go. That's why monopolist. That's okay. all.
0: Yeah. Kind of go back in time,
1: mm-hmm. time. Oh my god! And I, lo- I, I love that that was okay. Because I truly, even if you had done it in a very, in that very linear way, I would have just gone back and forth in time, and time. because it's like my brain is like, oh wait, this this is relevant, and then I would like, go deep into it, so it makes seem like it's not relevant, and then I have to bring it back. It's like I've, just, I've done like three or four conversations like this um, in the last two weeks, and with everyone i tell the person afterwards i'm like oh i'm sorry i'm a rambler so like uh, just
0: you know i should tell them back at the beginning.